Nightcaps of the Living Dead. Don't scream for me, Jamie Lee. Part two. Hi, everybody. Welcome back and happy Halloween. Ooh. Your ghost sounded so constipated, but I really appreciate <laughs> everything that happened there. <laughs> I mean, digestion issues are scary. Um, welcome back to part two of Halloween 2018. And where we left off actually was Halloween. Like we, we covered the whole first day, first act. And now we're going into actual Halloween day in Haddonfield, Illinois. So Jamie Lee Curtis knows that Michael Myers is running amok. And uh, she, she has an eye on him from the surveillance cameras, knows that, you know, he was on the bus, he's, he's free. And like most victims, they kind of keep an eye on their attackers. They, they kind of know where they are at all times or, you know, out of paranoia and fear. So she is not going to fuck around anymore. And she goes to Judy Greer's house, pounds on the door, and... Lori has a plan. She's like Elizabeth Warren last year. She knows what to do. So she tells her daughter, you know, mm-hmm. you haven't got your surveillance on point. You haven't got this shit going on. She's like, see? She's like, oh my God, see? you're crazy. Get out of my face. She's like, have, no, I think doesn't she say like, haven't you been drinking again? She always relates it to like Jamie's yes. hysteria and there must be some culprit rather than her own instincts. So what I noticed in this particular sequence is that the women are having a conversation about like, she's like, no, but Michael Myers escaped last night and this is happening. It's real. You need your own guns. You need your own thing. And Judy's like, you need cognitive therapy or whatever. And it's like, yeah, that would have helped me so long ago. But right now we need to physically protect ourselves. Exactly. (laughs) We need to fucking hunker down. Yeah. So the husband shows up in this sequence, and this is the part that I find interesting. Toby Huss Mm -hmm. from Halt and Catch Fire, Mm -hmm. amazing actor. But you know what? He's like Craig T in Poltergeist. He's fucking useless. useless. He shows up. Useless dad. And they kind of ignore him, which is very interesting. Mm -hmm. Even as it's a kind of like a... Pay off from the peanut butter and the penis scene earlier in the movie. Right, right. So, which that is such a Danny of, McBride line. You know, Danny McBride had yes. to be like, "Oh, this is funny, guys." You know, I mean, it is. It does do a kind of a throwback to the seventies, like "Hey, Mister Speed Kills" kind of fun quips of the movie. So, I appreciate the Danny McBride um, witticisms in this, but. Yeah, we see that the the dad shouldn't be taken seriously or is um, a vessel of safety for any reason. Yeah, he doesn't seem to have anything under control. And like uh, Allison's boyfriend that we've come to find out later on, he's kind of like a useless person in these situations of danger. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a theme in this movie about these white guys who don't really know what to do when real danger comes into the picture. Mm-hmm. As we all know in 2020, and I don't need to name any names for that. <laughs> well, you know, just to go off of that theory really quick, in the 50s, it became this about this feminist, soft, 
Um, I'm going to take care of the house. You make the money. I'm only going to eat this much. I'm not a heavy drinker. Like women had to be more dainty and delicate. And that as a culture kind of spread through into the 80s with Miss Nancy Reagan and, um, mm-hmm. and everything that we saw in Mrs. America with Kate Blanchett. And I feel that, you know, I think that that... It, it's been poisoned in our minds of women have to depend upon men to change a tire to the interesting point that you were trying to bring with all this is that the husband is dispensable mm-hmm. at the end of the day he's not necessary for the storyline or the survival of these women and that's a big point no one it's like the guy um the the podcaster british guy who tried yeah. to came to the rescue of the women podcaster you know what he's useless he's like mm-hmm. Gracie nelson and poltergeist the women got this but it's always that's like what the movie tells you all throughout the women got this all the men die oh right and, and but i do also okay. feel that we've placed so much importance on men being the protectors of us and and that goes into roles of toxic masculinity that men get this big idea of like oh well we'll save you and we'll help you they're a little lady and it was just very much in, in american culture that men had to act a certain way women had to act a little bit more delicate and dainty and oh no i can't take care of myself like we were taught home ec while a lot of the boys had shop you know and i didn't grow up in the 1950s but that's how it was at my school all the girls learned how to sew pillows and the guys went to make country wall shelves (laughs) like that was my upbringing in the 90s so I think that that faint trope is trying to be destroyed in this movie of like we still have those ideals instilled upon us just handed down from generation to generation but really we should all be looking out for our, our shit like the guys shouldn't the guys should worry about not getting murdered you know, they, they should be like, okay, you good girl? Um, can you scratch? Can you claw? Can you just kick him in the nuts really quick? I, I don't know. I'm out of here. I mean, the whole importance in placing men as saviors needs to go out the window. We all need to be accountable for our own actions and get our own shit together, you know, and help each other out. But uh, you got to learn how to survive on your own. Yeah, and this movie kind of, throws the husband as a protector out the window. Because and, he has you know, peanut when butter he dies, on we his are not dick. Really surprised. <laughs> I mean he had peanut butter on his dick, yes. Um so next up is the Halloween dance. <sighs> this made me wistful. I was just like, look at all those people in a room. One. When when will that happen again? Two when will like an epic Halloween carnival happen again? Haunted houses. I love Universal Horror Nights. I love going to the WeHo Carnival. All that's canceled. I know they're doing virtual stuff. It's not the same. Maybe I'll just hide in the bathtub and jump out and scare Jack when he's peeing or something. Maybe that'll be my Universal Horror Nights. <laughs> so this sequence at the dance at the high school reminds me a lot of the Rob Zombie Halloween reboot slash um, sequel Mm -hmm. that he did. I don't know why. Remember how in, um, in Rob Zombie's Halloween, they had like, like all the characters dressed as Rocky Horror Picture Show characters. Um, And for some reason, this reminded me of it. It was a little bit more... I mean, maybe it's because the Rob Zombie movies are not that old. Mm -hmm. 
And so they're trying to appeal to that millennial generation. Right, trying to do a fresh take on it. And and Rob Zombie, I feel like, of course, if you're a horror fan, you already know this. Rob Zombie is super, super smart and such a horror fan. And he does things well. I, I didn't dig his reimagination of Halloween, but I didn't think it was bad. But I, I love House of a Thousand Corpses and Devil's Rejects and all of that. Like, I, I really like his take on, on, on the genre. But um, yeah, that this Halloween was like okay, it's different for me. But yeah, I totally forgot about that. I mean, he has some, just to give him some props, especially in the sequel. There's a lot of surreal elements yeah. that are calling. Jodorowsky, like Mexican surrealism mm-hmm. and some David Lynch in there. It's just, it's just all very, I think it's him doing his thing. Right. Which props to him. Yeah. Not necessarily appropriate for Halloween, but fun stuff. Fun right, stuff. Right. So in this sequence is where we kind of find out that the boyfriend, the hip boyfriend who dresses as a woman and he's doing the Bonnie and Clyde thing, the reverse Bonnie and Clyde thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of a fuckhead. <laughs> he's the son of the bully from Halloween 1. He's uh, Lonnie's son. Mm. And he seems to be cheating on Allison with some other girl or whatever. And he throws her phone in the fucking pudding. And he's kind of an awful boyfriend. And so Alice is like, fuck you, I'm out. Which I love that she um, has that self-esteem. She isn't putting up with this shit. She's not a battered woman. She's like, you know what? No, fuck this noise. And she was justified for doing so. She left. And she left. Then she encountered the other awful <sighs> character in this movie, which is the best friend who's the geeky guy who's supposed to be the good guy and then turns exactly into Which the is so, I, you know, I felt that this was written, I don't know why I just said it that way, written. <laughs> written. You know, sometimes whenever I'm drinking, like I, I switched to rosé right now, um, I get so paranoid of my southern accent coming back into the world that I over-accentuate my syllables and I sound a little bit like Catherine O'Hara from Schitt's Creek. <laughs> 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 so please forgive me guys I'm not pretentious I swear to you I'm not <laughs> I'm just trying to make my, my mouth work um, so what were we saying um, oh the, the Jonah Hill type character this kid yes Jonah Hill is a perfect description <laughs> <laughs> so the writers did such a great job and for for not only the dialogue, for the story points, for being great to fans while creating something new, but also just the, I mean, the character development. And three guys wrote this, three men. And this is a very feminist tale. And normally, people would be up in arms, myself included, to be like, really, you're going to tell audiences how women think and act and feel about trauma? But it's very true. I feel like they, you know, they... They really did their research. They know women. They like women. They're allies. So this is to say that, I mean, and Stephen King does this too for Lissy's story, like, and, and Carrie, you can be a male and write a female perspective honestly. And, and um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I really, I wanted to be like, guys, you don't know how this is, but all of these relationships, I've had these relationships in my past, and as a high schooler, uh, like you date a guy, then you think he's pretty good, and then, oh, it turns out there's some red flags, okay. And then like with the friend character, 
myself included, this has happened to all of my girlfriends, of there's some guy that's in the friend zone and they're not threatening at all. And you really do think of them as a friend. And then one day out of the blue, they make a move on you. And it just changes everything. It changes the dynamic and you can get over it super quick. You're like, okay, buddy, like, that's fine. You were drunk or, or maybe you were feeling these things. I don't, but it's cool. Let's just move on with our friendship. And I want to say eight out of 10 of these instances that have happened, at least that I have had a front row seat to, um, the guy is so embarrassed that they just immediately shut off the friendship or they distance. Yeah. Because they didn't get what they wanted. And that's really heartbreaking to me. So whenever Mm -hmm. I saw this scene, I wasn't like creeped out or icked out. I was really sad by it because I thought about all those instances of like what I've experienced, what my friends did. And it's just like, oh, you really trusted this person. And it turns out they really disappointed you and you didn't do anything wrong. And this goes into the Laurie Strode mindset of, um, of being a victim of being like, did I do something to make Michael Myers chase me? Why is he obsessed with me? I think for a little Strode, I think she could have, they could have explored this, and I'm glad they didn't. I'm just like, I didn't do anything to lead him on, even though the dialogue is saying, like, you were giving me signs all night. And she's like, what? Huh? And he's saying this as he's going in for the kiss, and she clearly looks repulsed. He doesn't give a shit what she thinks or feels. He's just going to do it. So already, back to back, you had these two guys that you thought were okay, and they're not. Yep, yep. It's like a wah wah moment. <laughs> it's a sad because <laughs> it's a because you don't really see. I mean, I love this. I love the double whammy, the double toxic masculinity. Not only mm-hmm. is her fucking awesome boyfriend dressed as a woman, an awful human being, the best friend. Yeah, they're supposed right? to have her back and his back. Be, Ugh. And it turns out to be an equally awful person. And so they're breaking stereotypes because usually we've seen these figures in the Halloween movies before, but they're expected to be awful. Mm-hmm. Like when you when you saw these characters in Halloween 4 and 5, you know, they're expected to be the shitty boy. You, you know that they're a shitty boyfriend. Mm-hmm. So they're a kind of stereotypical representation of the white, shitty, toxic male boyfriend mm-hmm. here there's the twist they seem oh the guy is supposed to be the cool millennial who dresses who's like fluid sexually fluid and then the other guy is like the geeky boyfriend who's supposed to be like the good guy after the other guy fucks her over yeah nope and they're both, they're both the bad. same which is highlighting a larger problem about our society about mm-hmm. how these guys are being raised mm-hmm. um to the point that they think this way. I almost, this is going to sound like controversial. Okay. I almost don't blame them for it. I blame the people who, I blame the society that they're brought up in. Mm-hmm. That's how I felt about these characters. Mm-hmm. It's like, they're really young. I mean, you can, you can blame them fine, mm-hmm. but it's almost like the, the movie by having the double whammy of mm-hmm. the boyfriend and then him right after doing that to her and is we're also kind of setting her up as a badass 
fucking Laurie Strode, yeah, Alien, Sigourney Weaver, she's being raised a strong woman, too. which is amazing. I, I really like seeing that, and and also just to go on on that note to the awesome kid Julian, the the black kid that yes, the, the, the cr- best. Yeah, he is a little scene stealer, but I want to bring this up because I don't know if you feel that this is a minority issue or because like both of these guys that treated the girl were toxic white males, quote unquote. I mean, Mm -hmm. the one guy says that he's like part Cherokee or whatever, just to try to be relevant and try to empathize, I think. Exactly. Yes. And we guess. So then you have Julian and I didn't know if the commentary behind the kid being black and being just like awesome and talking like he and the babysitter are on the same vibe. She's really fun and cool. Talks to him like a peer. He spits it back of like the kid gloves are off. I know what's happening. Let's talk to each other like adults. I didn't know if this was a commentary of I'm, I'm, I'm a minority. Like I fucking know what the hell's going on in this white ass neighborhood of Illinois. So level with me, cut through the bullshit or if it was a representation of the next generation because the next generation they've seen some shit i mean we gave we gave millennials or a lot of millennials crap for thinking that their parents are helicoptery and i'm not just saying you and me i'm saying just we as a society um of saying like oh everybody gets a trophy and you know you're, you're living a little precious bubble and everything's sensitive but no this next generation has lived through this pandemic at such a young age and their whole way of life with schooling and socializing to happen in such formative years must be traumatizing like you know little laurie strode but um i didn't know if this character if you would take that as hey level with me society's been treating black people like shit for forever so cut to the chase or we're the next generation you don't have to hide things from me. The more truth I know, the better. I can be prepared. I mean, the way I see it, the movie is definitely kind of ushering a transition between an older perspective, mm-hmm. which is not that old, right? Which is a millennial perspective, and then the next generation, yeah. like you're saying. Okay. Um, and with this Julian kid. I don't know. I feel like we're getting something new. Mm-hmm. I think you're you're really pointing this out. We're getting with the with the two guys, the two toxic males that we saw. We're like we thought we were getting something new, mm-hmm. but it's it's packaged. Mm-hmm. It's like at the end of the day, they're operating with the same toxicity that has existed since forty years ago. Mm-hmm. Since Michael times, mm-hmm. you know, we can. And so they're not ready for the new way of being. Mm-hmm. So they fucking, well, one of them doesn't die. We'll be back in the sequel, right? Mm-hmm. The, the boyfriend is not dead, but the other guy is dead. Uh, whereas with Julian, we get a kind of like savvy new perspective. So is it racial? Maybe because. You know, black people have not had the same experiences as white people have had in the last 40 years, mm-hmm. of course. Mm-hmm. So they see life differently. They experience life differently. And I think that's brought into the fore with this with this small kid, right? This character who is a contrast to the other kid character that we saw earlier in the movie that was potentially transgender, potentially gay. Mm-hmm. The dance kid, right? Mm-hmm. 
So I think we get a really awesome representation of a much younger generation with these mm -hmm. two characters, right? Mm -hmm. They're bringing in new ideas about how to be. And maybe that's what this movie's about. It's a transition between the old and new. Mm -hmm. And the old that's really old, right? It's like you can repackage the toxic male, the awful boyfriend that thinks the woman is beneath him in this new sheep's clothing of the Bonnie and Clyde mm -hmm. uh, trope that you see, the reverse Bonnie and Clyde exchange of clothing. But at the end of the day, he's just a shithead. <laughs> you know, he's operating under the same awfulness that we've seen before. Yeah. He's a Michael Myers. Yeah. And it's interesting that he hasn't died yet in the movie because he'll, he'll be, I know for a fact that he's in the sequel, so he'll get a gruesome death. Or maybe he'll be for woke. sure. Maybe he'll reform his ways. Or maybe he'll learn some shit, which will be better, actually, right? <laughs> learn some maybe fucking he'll grow. something. That'd be great character development. Who knows? I mean, shocking character development but good character hey, development. well let's we'll remain optimistic uh, yes. but so the the babysitter she's so crass and fun also throwback to the original like she's just kicking it and she and and the cute kid are talking about weed and he's clipping his toenails like it's such a funny scene it lightens the mood it's really great um and then um little robbins comes over <laughs> Tim Robbins' kid. Susan Sarandon's kid. And Tim Robbins' son. So he comes over. He's like, ooh, I'm a pothead. I'm I like know. cute and potheady. <laughs> um, but then he I has... think he's really cute. I don't really? know. I think he's a very attractive young man. Okay. Well, I'll get you um, a, fan, a fan club. Like, I'll, I'll see if he's on for fans I have only. A fan club. No, he was in this other movie that I saw in Shudder. Okay. Uh, I think it was called Patrick. It's a really good movie. You should watch it. Oh, that you sounds familiar, actually. Um, I do like his look. He has a different look. And it's also, I like the idea of, okay, Jamie was Janet's kid. And, and now... And now we have another celebrity. Yeah, we have a Rocky Janet Carter. and Tony Curtis, his kid, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Two celebrities. So we have this here, which is... But at the same time, they kind of discard him and he dies. Yeah. In like five <laughs> seconds. So... Well, I mean, psycho. I don't know. But it's no, just... I, I, I had this whole tangent in my head when I was watching this about the placement of, of the children of celebrities, like the whole nepotism that happens in movies and especially horror movies. And in horror movies and also Tarantino movies, they do it as like kind of like a wink, wink. And it's like a passage of honor. Um, is that the right term or honor of passage? I don't know. It's, it's like a... <laughs> A rite of passage. There you go. Um, so yeah, it's a rite of passage. And I read a lot of interviews with Jamie Lee where she's just like, no, I, I was, you know, under contract and working on some things. And, and the only reason why I went into this audition is because Lori was on every page. Like she was in every scene. And she's like, I'm not attracted to horror. I, to this day, I don't like horror movies that much. And she's like, I've been really... Um, tied into horror movies since before I was born. And she's just like, but it's not something that calls to me. I don't think she was cast in the original movie because she was Janet Lee's daughter. Oh, no, not at all. Think, no. Oh, you know, psycho, Janet Lee's daughter, let's put her in a movie. Why not? No. She had, had to audition for that role. She, she did. She earn that role. She did. Um, it's a coincidence that this kind of 
um, passing of the torch happened. from screen queen to screen queen happened. It was never planned. It was. It's a complete. I honestly think it's a good old um, fashioned DNA situation. Like the public was not wanting to place this title upon her. I just think it's Janet Lee and then Jamie. I think they are just such naturally gifted performers that this just happened. That you were compelled to be on their side. And in a horror movie, you have to be on the main character's side in order for it to have any kind of effect on you. And they're both of those women are extremely charismatic and Tony Curtis as well. But um, yeah, I, I read an interview where she said the only reason why she auditioned for it is because she was doing some work as a teenager and she was, you know, like a line here, a line there, one scene, you know, and then she was in every single scene in Halloween. She was like, okay, this is low budget. This seems fun. I don't know. And she wasn't particularly interested in horror, but she really wanted the chance to act. And that she did. And now we have this. We have her legacy. And act in a whole movie, right? Like a whole She wanted to be in every scene. She wanted to explore her craft instead of being like, you know, hot girl number two. So understandable. And I love the fact that Full Circle and the Mattishak, this is her first movie. Yeah, yeah, same. Just like like Jamie Mm -hmm. Lee. Um, And again, from what I read, it is not that they intended to do like, oh, let's get a newbie actress. No, she rocked the audition. That was it. Yeah. They could have gotten other people who were famous auditioned for this role. And they would have totally gladly cast them because that means more money for some reason mm-hmm. if it's someone that you already know but no she rocked it and you know we get another newbie yeah so i, I do like the whole honoring of putting a, a star's kid in something but then like immediately getting rid of them because just because of nepotism that doesn't mean that you're going to hang out and have a lustrous career. There's a lot of people that try it and then we're like, oh, remember, I mean, Chet Hanks, anybody? <laughs> I mean, he comes and goes all the time. Tom Hanks is good. It's like, just because your parents are movie stars, you don't get Does gifted mean, yeah. this. So she, Jamie Lee is- oh. Emma Roberts, <laughs> drink. Oh God. Well, she's, she's working. She has a career. People like I know, her. I know, I know. We, some people feel but she's not iconic jamie jamie lee curtis is iconic she is an intelligent woman very outspoken and in the 80s and 90s good god her body was banging so to be like this feminist icon this beloved actress and also action star at times gifted comedic actress and then also to maintain that her body during all of this and then you know also coming from hollywood royalty she's such a fascinating person to me i i just love her also i just saw an interview with her she i don't i think she's in her 60s she looks phenomenal what's well, all that yogurt she's eating all the yogurt activia activate <laughs> everything <laughs> she looks amazing and she's amazing and she will always be amazing i love her Jamie Lee live on forever, forever. forever, She's going to do two more movies after this. So it's awesome. We already have one shot in the can. And then the last one will come out after that. And so I honestly wonder for our younger listeners, if the first time they've seen Jamie Lee is Freaky Friday. Oh, with (laughs) Lindsay Lohan. (laughs) Maybe, but that's okay. It's okay because everything she has a pretty solid discography. Or you can say that she has a pretty solid filmography, so. 
Oh you're my god. Lindsay and her rumors. I'm sick of the rumors starting. <laughs> I'm sick of being followed. Okay, so Michael Myers comes and kills the babysitter's boyfriend and kills the babysitter. Um so after yes. that cute moment with Julian and Vicky, he's clipping his toenails and they're, you know, having this moment and he thinks that he sees somebody, she goes up there and fakes him out because they have that fun, playful relationship. And that's a good scare moment for us because, you know, we're thinking, oh, is Michael Myers killing her now? Nope. Obviously, it's a little suspense freak out um, or a little suspense cop out. So then Michael Myers does come, kills her. We got that old fashioned babysitter killing that some of the OG fans want, like subconsciously, they want that. And I love this kid got the fuck out of there. He ran down the stairs and it, it kind of goes to um eddie murphy the the whole get out conversation that we have when eddie murphy made a, a joke about like oh if there's a haunted house and black people are in there they'll be like oh this place is beautiful like what do you, you want to stay here like how much is this get out okay baby too bad that we can't move in and they just leave like because they think that when you're an endangered minority you just know any sign of danger get the fuck out of there you don't want to die the system doesn't care if you perish in a second so i thought i i laughed mm-hmm. and also felt a sense of sadness <laughs> of just like he got the fuck out of there but i loved i didn't get this the first time around this time he yelled to um the boyfriend the boyfriend's downstairs miles robbins yes Sex. miles robbins he's like get out of here you're gonna get killed too <laughs> It's like, he's the voice of reason. He knows and he just gets out of Dodge. <laughs> and then they kill he, Little Robbins. He gets to survive for the next movie. Yay, which I'm all about it. I'm, I will follow that kid. Like, I want to see his career take off. Um, so Little Robbins gets killed in an OG way. Like, doesn't he get kind of pinned to the wall like Brad did like the, in the yeah, first one? Yeah, like the, the PJ Souls' boyfriend. Yeah. And the first um, guy. Bob, Bob, not Brad, Bob. Oh, same thing. I cut your your ghost, Bob. That's why I remember the line. Um, So yeah, he gets killed just like Bob. So I think these two are supposed to be the new Linda, Mm -hmm. PJ Souls, who, by the way, is the voiceover of the teacher in the earlier scene when Elsa is at the school. Yep. Yeah. PJ Souls has a voice cameo in this movie. So I think they're the new Linda and. Bob, Mm -hmm. but I have questions about them. Okay, because they he he says that he got this tattoo to commemorate. Do you remember this? Yes, I I have a whole thing about this. I want to talk to you about it. Good, good, because I'm going to tell you my questions about it. Okay. So he says, "Oh, I got a tattoo to commemorate," and then when he dies, you see that the tattoo is the date. Yes. Ten thirty-one eighteen. But then when she, she when he tells her this earlier they're like oh i'm gonna dry fuck you so hard mm-hmm. and they have like a like make out session before everything else goes down so i was really confused by this okay because i was like are they commemorating the fact that they're gonna have sex for the first time but then she says i'm gonna dry fuck you so is it more like he thinks something else is gonna happen and she's like no i'm in control this is what we're gonna do but then why is she so excited about it? Why is the what's the commemoration that the tattoo You know, I had similar thoughts. I mean, don't you know that's how we straight people talk to each other? Like we get flowers, no, like I'm, I'm gonna dry fuck you, baby. No, we don't speak now. <laughs> so um I I had the similar 
thought process. I understand why you're a little muddy on this. I'm confused, yeah. right? Am I, am I appropriately confused? Yes, I you think are. I am. You, are, you are. So I took it as, I thought it was like, this is the night you're going to lose your virginity to me. Exactly. Okay. Or, yes. or this is our first night as a couple. We're a new couple. And this is the first time we're going to have sex. I actually okay. feel like it was more of that, that they're a new couple, because she's so crass and kind of fun. She seems like she's been around the block and, you know, like, and I'm not saying, I'm not slut shaming <laughs> Vicky. I'm just, but the way that she say, I'm going to dry fuck you, and they're, they're not going to have sex. They don't have sex. Well, maybe it could Did be like get a... get that tattoo in vain? Yes, or is I think old like... old-fashioned ideas about what consummating a relationship it, is? Well, yes, it could be that. I also think it's just her sense of humor because she's like so funny and I feel like she's a modern girl of just like I'm very sexual, I make jokes about sex, whereas back in the day you were kind of seen as like a little slutty and a whore if you kind of make sex jokes or dirty, you're a blue comedian or whatnot. But it's like, she's like, oh, I'm going to dry fuck you so hard thinking like okay a lower your expectations buddy like you you mm -hmm. thought you just you were so confident you were going to get in my pants so you had this put on your arm but then she's also like a little impressed and flattered of like wow this is going to be permanently on your body forever you must think that i'm a big deal so it kind of just explores their their relationship like how it's just different than all the other relationships we're exploring. Like he's not a toxic male. He's trying to do something to mm -hmm. honor her, but he's also kind of clueless, clueless and goofy. I like all your explanations, but I think this it's meant to make you think about what commemorating a milestone in a relationship is for these kids. Yeah, that's true. Because we immediately, our heads go to like, oh, they're going to fuck. It's going to be like she loses her virginity to him. But maybe we're thinking too old, like right? We're we're we having but, an outdated opinion. But about I also what think I I personally think the more that we're talking about this, I think it is to show a juxtaposition of how we have Little Strode and her shithead boyfriend, and how he was doing the right things, and ultimately we see that he's terrible. And then this guy, he's just goofy, and we don't really take him that seriously. But then we see that by him doing this, he's doing something permanent, something to try to pledge his, you know, like what he wants from this woman. I think like in her head and in the audience's view, we're thinking, oh, he's serious about her. They're not just going to like fucking bone on Halloween. And then she's making a joke of it. Or it could be a, a role reversal of toxic femininity. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know. It could be that of like maybe she's taking this good guy for granted because that's certainly a thing too. Um, but what I picked up from this whole thing, whenever they do the close-up of the Halloween tattoo on his arm. I, what I didn't get the first viewing, but what I got this second time, there's such a thing with identity and, um, and objects, objects that trigger you. So like what you and I talked about earlier with Michael Myers, uh, uh, you know, having a moment with the mask and really cementing his identity. Jamie- As a cuckoo slang member. <laughs> yes. I do, I do, I'm with I see it. Perception. I mean, I didn't see it without you saying that, but now it kind of makes sense to me. Um, Jamie Lee, the, the closet is her triggering object. The closet with the doors and the light bulb. 
Like that, that forever will haunt her. For Judy Greer, which we'll get to in the, the final act, she, she's already hinted that she's had this traumatizing childhood because of her mom. Her mom couldn't figure her shit out. Jamie Lee was just so wrapped up in her own stuff and thought she was being a good parent, but really terrorizing her and trying to protect herself with guns and, and that somebody was always going to be after her. She has that moment later in the movie with the gun that, you know, that's her triggering object. So these things define mm-hmm. you. They can save you. They can cause you pain, but they definitely elicit strong emotions and reactions. So for the tattoo, I thought the tattoo was just like for this little side character, not so much as a character development tool, but to be like, it triggered that action. I'm just like, hey, I did this for you. And then she's like, oh, I'm gonna like dry fuck you, whatever. And then ultimately, that was all that we needed from that character. Like he was just like, I love this girl, wanted to get fucked. Oh, Halloween, I'm dead. <laughs> I mean, it was a it was a moment of identity for this character that we didn't really have a lot of explanation about. They're not painted as these dimwits. Mm-hmm. She's very smart in her interactions with Julian, the black kid. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he's a stoner or whatever, but they're riffing off Bob and Linda from the previous movie. But the way we came to think of Bob and Linda from rewatching Halloween was very different from what your initial perception of them might be, right? She always mm-hmm. says the word totally, but there's something about the way we think of the two, these two characters who die in the movie, right? Mm-hmm. We don't think, we think fondly of them. We've made them grow into these. I mean, PJ Souls has become an icon mm-hmm. because she played this very small role in the movie. So maybe these two versions of them are commemorating the fact that Halloween will make them into these epic beings. I don't know. Maybe it's meta. I don't know. The next thing I want to talk about is Allison's reaction to the geeky guy's death. And I know we already talked about this a little bit because mm-hmm. this happens around the same time. This is a significant moment in the movie. Every time I watch this, I've, in terms of her arc, she comes back. You remember? She's like, oh, you're off. I rewound this. Away. And, Do and I even say killed. rewind anymore? Because we don't have VHSs. I skipped back. I don't even know. But like, I, I, I rewatched that part because after he was so shitty to her and he's screaming for help, she, even though she didn't need to, she's an empathetic person. She's a caring person. Even though she's pissed off, she came back to find him. Yes, I felt that was a strong moment. But then... The way she reacts to him, to his dead body. I don't know if this is just me. And I thought this the first time I watched the movie. There is a moment in her about this. Hmm. And I don't necessarily know what it means. And this is the awesome music cue that that John Carpenter and his son, Cody Carpenter, Mm -hmm. came up with. They have like the, the really awesome Halloween new version theme in this sequence as she runs away. But her reaction is odd. It's Hmm. like her reaction to the violence is odd. Hmm. Um, I didn't take that. I thought she reacted pretty normally. I honestly don't know what to make of it. I I connect that moment to the end of the movie when she has a knife. And I was like, is is there a bloodthirsty side to her that we don't know? Or like... Oh, 
a, a, a violent way of her taking back the narrative. I don't know, but I always think of that moment. There's something strange about it. Mm -hmm. um, where maybe it's the moment where she decides not to be a victim. No, 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 no. I, I don't know, but there's I, something strange here's, about here's it. Here's what all. I think. I, I didn't think it was anything strange. I did notice that she was a, it was an angry reaction but that that makes sense for her character and earlier in the movie she tells jamie lee curtis you know hey something bad happened to you get over it people can think that's like a very non-caring response so i do think that's kind of her mo that she compartmentalizes and so she exactly yeah. okay i think you just answered my question okay so there's a way of her to she doesn't. She doesn't want to deal with trauma the same way. Yeah, she, she's like, oh, I she's saw like, this. I'm not going to be that because a lot of you know, I know I do. I'm like, I'm not going to be my mom, and you know, I'm going to handle this better. And then sometimes you catch yourself. <laughs> You're like, ah, oh, shit. I I just handled that. She like doesn't know. This is amazing. Mm. I think you just answered my question. She okay. doesn't want to react to this as a victim. She wants to be proactive. She wants to be yeah, I like that. Wrong. She wants to be, and her reaction as an actress in that moment is like, "This fucked up thing just happened to me, mm -hmm. and I'm not gonna react the way you want me to react." And that fits with the rest of the movie, with the way she reacts to the doctor going crazy mm -hmm. and forcing her to be next to Michael Myers. Oh my God, that whole scene. Um, Let, let's talk about that. Let's get back to the Mustafa-esque doctor and and the whole police car, Michael Myers thing. So, okay. So after Michael Myers kind of terrorizes her and then she runs to um, through the neighborhood, she escapes and um, the cops come and get her to kind of save her. Meanwhile, exactly. Yeah, so Judy Greer and Jamie are in the bunker. They're like, shit's gonna go down. And I also liked how Jamie got Judy to go back to the house. Like Judy was just being like, no, you're being crazy and this. And then <laughs> Jamie Lee took that tone that only, I mean, I bet, I bet your mom, did your mom ever scream at you in Spanish or just like be really stern with you or say all of, all of your names at once? Because, oh, yeah. Absolutely. Of course. Yeah, I feel like everybody has that thing of when you're younger, you know when not to cross that line that your parents are not fucking around anymore. And as adults, we forget that. And I just love that Jamie Lee's just like, okay, I'm going to write off. Like, my daughter thinks I'm crazy. Okay, I handle her this way, I handle her that way. She Nothing gets through to her. And she just yells at her that, you know, to get in the car, to come with her. And Judy takes it. Judy's just like, oh, okay, she's not oh. putting up with my bullshit anymore. Okay. Hey, I've got to listen to my mom. I'm an adult, but okay, here we go. So they're in the bunker. The cops come. They take Little Strode. And Mustafa is with the cops at this point? What, yes, how? he's in the car yeah. with the cop with, with Hawkins. Yeah. Who, by the way, looks like John McCain. I don't know why I said <laughs> He kind of does. <laughs> right? He's he, like John McCain. He's like the heartfelt. Yeah. Yeah, oh, I, can see that. I don't know. And also, I, um, I wrote that down. I was like, he reminds me of John McCain. With a little bit of Robert McCain. Duvall, too. Just a little yes. bit. Yes. Yes. So they have these hijinks where they run over Michael Myers, and, you know, and of course. And, and he, McCain, gets killed. Yeah, he gets killed. Right. And then, By the doctor, and the doctor reveals his evilness he wants to be just like michael yes because he's a and the movie also explores themes of obsession like michael myers is obsessed with laurie laurie is 
she doesn't obsessed. want to be, but she is obsessed with him too. Um, Judy's obsessed with her flawed relationship with her mother. Um, and of course, the doctor, he, he just, he, he's studying evil so much. And for us, as a, an unsuspecting audience, we're like, oh, he wants to dissect the evil. He wants to prevent the evil. But we're so naive in thinking that. It's just like, no, he actually, maybe he wants to become the evil. Maybe he But he never identifies. wants to kill the evil. He exactly. always says, this is my patient. He needs to be preserved. And this is the Mustafa connection. Mm. Mustafa always said, I want Michael Myers to live forever. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Because, of course, it's his business. Yeah. Well, <laughs> for Michael Myers. He'll make as many sequels as there needs to be. Right. Michael Myers will always survive. So, that's my connection of Dr. Sartain with Mustafa. But, in this moment that we're talking about, where he, like, oh, he kills McCain and then forces Allison to be next to... Um, uh. Which is a very a stressful moment in the movie. And then here's the part that I find very interesting. Allison says, oh, he spoke to me. I will tell you what he said. And we go back to the beginning of the movie with the Mm -hmm. mask. Say something. Mm -hmm. And then the doctor says, what the fuck did he say? Everyone wants Michael to say something. Mm -hmm. And she's completely like lying and making this up. To get away of of course, like she's, she's right? trying to manipulate to, as a survival technique. She needs to get the hell out of there. But I also want to say to that whole point of him putting, like, throwing unconscious Michael Myers next to her, when we saw it, the audience gasped because they know. I mean, we're already identifying so strong that this woman is being viciously attacked by a maniac. And then even though it, he could be dead, he could be out cold, whatever, the this person being physically thrust upon you and also in our modern day culture is just horrifying horrifying that oh that i felt like that was the most scary moment for me honestly out of the entire movie but at the same time awesome andy manishak as an actress her reaction to this situation which is the most fucked up thing Mm -hmm. anyone a woman or not could be put into Her reaction um, was that of not being afraid. So she was clever. Well, yeah, you don't want to show fear. Yeah. She was like, okay, you want to know what he said? She was reading the doctor. It's like, oh, I'm going to throw your bone here. With like, oh, you want to know what he was talking about? He said something to me. She was like, what did he say? She got him to stop. And then the part that I find even more interesting is why did Michael Myers not kill her? Did you notice this? Am I weird about this? I have, He decides to kill the doctor who is in front of him and he has to push his seat into and then mm-hmm. he get him out. Mm-hmm. So she's able to escape. And a lot of people read this moment. It's like, oh, is this a bad movie moment where like the girl gets to escape? Hmm. I could but see I was that, like, but I, yeah, I, I don't, don't read so. it that way. I read it. Michael decided not to kill her and kill him first. And in fact, and I think this is going to come back in the sequel. I think Michael has respect for her. She's not, she's not afraid. And that puts him off and throws him off his game. I, I've watched this many times. Why the fuck does he not just kill her? 
because my theory is that her entire demeanor is like, I'm not fucking afraid of anything. I have a different theory on that. I so think she's not like the, the, the person afraid that I'm going to take care of. He decides to kill him instead. I, I don't know. I think, that, what you I think. think you're projecting a little bit of motivation once again. And in this version, Michael Myers doesn't have motivation. I know it's true. So, but, I think I honestly. Is it a bad script moment? No, or is there I, I don't. To it? I don't think it's a bad script moment. I think if you if you look at the history of kills in this movie, he just doesn't kind of one and done it. He kills in a very dramatic fashion. He likes the stalk. He likes the chase. He's been chasing this bitch all around, and now she's right next to him. But he still needs to play with his food before he eats it. And I honestly think it was a snap decision. If, if we're thinking Michael Myers is a true person that's emotionally disturbed, I think he had a snap judgment of a fun, fucked up, twisted way to hurt another being. He just saw what was the most accessible and went for it. Because otherwise, his other option would just be like to start stabbing her. And that's not... Not only is that not a beautiful movie choice for the audience, but it's for him. Like he kills very dramatically, like knives through the head, pinning to the wall. The the sidekick character, he has like this Hannibal moment on the the gates. Like he's strung up there. Like he's he's a little dramatic in his killings. It's just beneath him to just see somebody next to you and stab. But also, now that you say that. I'm thinking he mostly kills men in this movie. Hmm. He only hmm. kills three women. The podcaster, mm -hmm. Vicky, the blonde chick who was babysitting. Mm -hmm. Oh, and that's it. No, and the neighbor. No, There's a neighbor lady in the beginning that she that he kills. The neighbor lady? When it's ha um, like people are trick-or-treating and he's running amok oh, in the neighborhood. the old lady. Yeah, the old lady. Oh, the neighbor lady. Yeah, okay. Oh, yes. no, and he, but he kills. No, wrong. He kills no, he the kid. He kills kids. the neighbor lady and, and the He kills the kid in the lady. beginning, yes. too. He kills the little boy. But, but he could be a but, different gender. Who knows? But he also kills the dad, doesn't he? He, like, he kills most. He kills more, more men than women in this movie, okay. which I think is a point that David Gordon Green is making huh. about his M.O. A lot of people think um, his M.O. is misogynistic. He, he, I think you're right. I think he kills whoever he has to kill, mm -hmm. regardless of gender. Hmm. We interpret Michael Myers in a certain way, but in this movie, he kills more men than women. Intriguing. We should actually like. In fact, the women kind of take care of him at the end. Which well, we'll oh, that ending so good. Uh, but so we're we're getting there. He kills the doctor, which we have a complicated wistfulness for this doctor because he's a little Mustafa and he's not quite Donald Pleasance, but he's also interesting. And he dies because we, we see him take that little dark turn really quick in the car. And ultimately, it's, you know, that Bukowski uh, quote, uh, find what you love and let it kill you. So he, he died a happy death, I feel like, in his head. I mean, I think he went yeah. peacefully. I mean, it looked violent. He, I mean, but... he wanted Michael to thrive in his own environment <laughs> and live in the wild. And so he did that. And then he was the victim for it. You know, I mean, it's like a mother so... with a, a, a an abusive son or something. Like I just rewatched uh, I Killed My Mother, the Xavier 
Dolan <gasps> film. Yeah. I just love him so much. I rewatched that and I was like, oh man, he really hates his mother. He just, oh my God, he just resents her at everything. And it kind of made me think about this. It made me think about Halloween and a little bit of the doctor and patient relationship of like they love each other, they understand each other. Only one's going to get out of here alive, you know? Anyway, so Xavier Dolan and Halloween, everybody. (laughs) I love him. Okay, so then we discover the cop car comes to the Strode abode. And, of course, Peanut Butter Dick comes out to explore, only to get killed really quick. The dad goes out there. He's useless. Killed immediately. Like Craig T. Nelson in Poltergeist. (laughs) Yeah. As we have already mentioned. He's out. And then, um, and so Michael Myers comes in, and this is such an exhilarating final battle sequence. This is so good. We have Judy, we have Little Strode, we have Laurie, and then Michael Myers is outside, and they do that kind of, you know, he sees Laurie, Laurie sees him through the window, he goes, they just battle. They just, it's so intense. And he does the hand through the door and grips her, and we get a little bit of familiar. Um, imagery from the past movies and then she takes a shotgun and just shoots above her shoulder like she is not messing around she's she's ready for him um, and then judy and little strode go down to the the panic room slash basement the trap door and we see oh that moment with judy she does not want to go in the cellar she is so traumatized she just sees it and so she has to you know like Lori had to go to the closet and that was her refuge and also mm-hmm. it fucked her up for the rest of her life. She has to face her trauma. Yeah. And she goes down there and she sees the gun with her. And I almost cried from Judy Greer's expression, just looking at the gun with her little childlike initials in there. And you just get in that flash second that her childhood was so hard and and that Jamie Lee was really trying to look out for her and loving her in the best way that she knew how but it was just not for Judy Greer. But now the little Strode gets it. It skipped a generation. Like she, she understands the, the craziness and knows how to handle her mom and thinks her actions are actually justified. But uh, there, there's just so many familial dynamics amongst women going on in this movie that I, I just found it so fascinating. So you, you have all that emotional drama going on with Michael Myers trying to kill Jamie upstairs. So... One thing that I want to mention really quickly before yes. we go into this, about, yeah. especially about the, tr- the transgenerational trauma um, and this kind of three generations of women mm-hmm. dealing with things in a different way. One of the things that I found interesting about the rewatch was before um, Little Throat, a.k.a. Allison, a.k.a. Andy Matishak, <laughs> gets to the house... She kind of has this run through the woods sequence. Oh yes, with the creepy mannequins that Jamie Lee's and the mannequins in the moonlight. That's such a good shot. It was really creepy. It's a really creepy, but it's a very kind of psychological moment. Mm -hmm. There is no threat from Michael Myers in this moment. Right. It's this. It's this moment of reckoning with her ghost and her past. Yes, I yes. Or or her transgenerational trauma. Right. Right. Uh So. It's her facing who Laurie is. And I always find this moment because we've seen this this mannequins before. Laurie has been shooting at them. This is the the basically the the things that Laurie has been preparing for until mm-hmm. tonight. 
So I interpreted that sequence as um, Little Strode is kind of understanding, beginning to understand what her grandmother was talking about. Even though I think she got her always, mm-hmm. even in the scene that they had previously. Mm-hmm. But it's like now that she's been through this traumatic experience in the car with like, you know, Mustafa slash Dr. Loomis part two. Mm-hmm. And having Michael Myers right next to her and kind of facing him, all the things that she's gone through through the movie, these these reactions that I've been telling you about, even when she saw the geeky guy who tried to sexually assault her mm-hmm. die, um, there is a twist when she finds the mannequins in the moonlight, right? And then she comes into the house with new understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I also take that as that she understood her mom in that second, too. Like, her mom uh, had to deal... Oh, well, she was talking about earlier, right? Mm-hmm. With, the, with the training that right. went down. She sees both perspectives. Because, I mean, haven't you ever hung around somebody? I mean, I feel like I, feel like I know these scenarios. You're a very patient person with people, and you really try to understand where they're coming from. And and there are other people that aren't so patient, and you got to be like, well, think of it subjectively. You're hard on them, or can you put yourself in their shoes? And some people have um, a better grasp on that than others. I'm not saying like mm-hmm. empathy. I'm just saying to to really consider a different perspective and and patience. Because there are some people that, I mean, like for the Judy Greer, Jamie Lee relationship, this is very common in a lot of mother-daughter relationships. They're just like, ah, you don't get me, you don't understand me. There's just like this flat out, you don't get it. Even though this woman gave birth to you and you you share the same genes and she, she knows every aspect of your life. There's this defiance that comes from a daughter to a mother and little strode i feel like she you know as that outside party she doesn't know what happened between these two she just sees her mom who has given her some grief probably for just being a teenager sees her being so hard on jamie lee so this little outside perspective is like you're too hard on her you're too hard on her and i bet that judy probably resents little strode of like you don't know what my days were like and that I had no mother and I raised you just fine. Like, come on, give me some credit here. So with that mannequin scene, here Little Strode's been on Lori's side the entire time. I felt like in that moment, she kind of got a little bit more of her mom's side of, wow, you were my age. I like this. I like this interpretation. Hmm. So she got her mom's childhood, which then sets up the final twist about the relationships, which do we want to mention Go, right let's, now? Let's do it. Let's get there. When she says, when, when um, Judy Greer goes, it's not, a, it's not a, a cage, it's a trap. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, boom. Mm-hmm. The lesson of the Strode family that gets passed down from generation to generation is like, you're not a victim. You're a fighter. You always have the leg up. You're always, always going to be fine. You always have a leg up, which she has had the entire movie. The entire movie. And, and that's the part where, she, oh, my God, this is beautiful. Um, in the scene with the geeky guy who tries to sexually assault her, and she's like, fuck you, I'm walking away. In the scene with Michael Myers, which is like, the, the killer is right next to her, and she's like, I'm not afraid of you. Mm-hmm. In the scene where she runs off, She's always not afraid to face the the 
the people trying to bully her, victimize her, including her boyfriend who's trying to gaslight her in the other yeah, scene. Yeah, yeah. Um, what she's learned from her grandmother through her mother mm-hmm. is to never be afraid and face evil. Yeah. And when the, when Judy Greer turned that moment, which yeah, I think she is fix the, her the out. Moments. Oh, but wait, before that, yeah. before that, what I feel like gets her there is what Jamie Lee straight up apologizes to Judy Greer. Remember that she's just like, I'm sorry for what I did to you. It was out of fear and out of love. I love you. And I think that when people just hear apologies, or an acknowledgement of the trauma, they can release, they can let go of some anger. And I think that in itself motivated Judy. And then, and what you were saying, and the beautiful to, moment. to kind of have that moment where she turns to Michael and pretends to be the victim. Yes. And it tricks him into- Gaslights him. Bullying you in <laughs> with, as a prey, but I'm really gonna fucking kill you. Um, and that moment pays off Laurie Strode as a mother because she's told the granddaughter many mm-hmm. scenes earlier if your mother is ready remember that scene where mm-hmm. she says if she's ready if I was a shitty mother but that means that she's ready for the that you're ready. fucked up shit yep. of this world yep. then I'm okay being painted as a shitty mother because you're going to live and that face off in that moment yep. she's like she was a shitty mother. I was traumatized by all this training that I had to do. It's excellent But dialogue. I'm ready to fucking face this bitch. Yeah. When he comes down the fucking stairwell. And it's amazing. It's, it's powerful it's, women teaching each other how to be powerful women. Yeah. I, I had Boom. chills rewatch. Like, it's just beautiful. I, I thought that was excellent dialogue. It's excellent setup. And... So they have that moment. And I also like that we just don't have a fight scene and then we have them in the basement having this moment. Lori's all over the place. She's running up, she's running down. Judy and little Schroeder in the basement. Like there's so much action along with these emotional elements. It's a really, really great final act. And um, Lori goes up there and they have a closet moment. So we we as viewers get to see that awesome closet with the double doors and the bare light bulb and, um, she and Mike keep fighting. Um, and then what happens? They do a hand-to-hand combat kind of situation. Oh. In the in the room. Yeah, in the right? room. And then she throws, she goes over the balcony. He, yeah, right? he gets her off the balcony. So some role reversal, some, some gender swapping there. Because in the first one is that iconic shot of, of he goes over the balcony, he lands on his back, and then he's gone. And then, he's gone in the exactly. next Exactly. And now it's Jamie Lee who right. falls on the ball. So they recreate that. And that's just awesome. Um, what else happens in that final end? I think one of the scariest sequences in movie history is when Jamie Lee is trying to find Michael with her shotgun mm-hmm. and closing down the traps behind her. Oh, that's right. So you know that she's planned this. And this is kind of coupled with the moment where Judy Greer tells Little Strode, it's not a cage, it's a trap. Mm-hmm. No, wait, no, she says that at the end, sorry. But when you go rewatch it, you connect this with like, oh, she has this like kind of like trapping thing mm-hmm. and she gets to that room with a shotgun. That scene was so scary because David Gordon Green, as a director, He's really destroyed good. The idea of horror timing. You're waiting for the jump scare. There's something in this sequence with the mannequins and the closet 
where it's like you completely like go beyond the point of waiting for the jump scare. It's very strange. The editing, the timing of that sequence is brilliant. Well, also what I picked up oh is... Oh, my God. Because, like, okay, you and I are talking about all the gaslighting elements. Here we have the physical gas in the house. Exactly. <laughs> and it blows it up. And it's awesome. So after... Um, they trap Michael in the basement and he's looking up and I, I examined this shot for several minutes because this is a time where you do see the eyes behind the mask. And for me as a viewer, as a only whole, time in the movie, the only time, very significant. Yeah. Yes. And so for me as a viewer and as, as a female, I, actually was staring at those eyes to be like, does he have any empathy? I just really feel like that's my personality of like, do you just have any kind of acknowledgement? Like, are you going to close your eyes thinking it's done or, you know, that I'm absolved or anything? And he just stares so blankly. So we do know he's he's like a machine. He is a monster. He is just purely driven by evil. They These three women are justified in what they're about to do. They're about to kill this guy in a brutal fashion and um so the three women are looking down at him he's looking up at them and then the entire basement is engulfed in flames and and i felt so liberated and this wasn't a typical horror movie moment of yay they got away yeah he's dead i honestly i was so emotionally invested and Jamie Lee, <laughs> then I'm like, you were finally going to have peace. You're going to have peace. But you know why this moment works? It works because it's not only Jamie Lee getting peace and being proven right mm -hmm. about what she was claiming after 40 years. It's her daughter understanding that her mother was right. Mm -hmm. So it's not just Jamie Lee getting her vindication. It's her daughter who has bottled her on this mm -hmm. and thought traumatized by her training mm -hmm. the daughter knows and then the granddaughter also knows so mm -hmm. the three of them come together in a moment where they don't have to battle each other because they're all right 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 they're all right in this purpose and it's not done in this hokey way. It's yeah. It's not tied up with this little movie. bow. Yeah, it's it's yeah. there the entire time. And yeah, I I agree with you completely on this because in that amazing final shot, it, it was such a good shot. They're in the truck, and they're going away, kind of like a Texas Chainsaw moment of like yes, okay, very Texas Chainsaw. Yes. Yeah, they they go and they're exhausted from battling this emotionally, physically, and as you see the, the three generations of the Strode women, and it pans down to the knife and little Strode's hand and her dead ass expression and kind of wearing the similar clothes that Jamie Lee did, like what we talked about since she was Bonnie and Clyde, she was Clyde and kind of a similar outfit that Jamie was in in the first movie. Um, but I, I love that shot because for me, and it's, it's shot, I believe, in silence. I don't think there's anything on the radio or there's no music carrying it out. Or if so, it's very faint. Because I read something recently that just kind of changed my mind on this whole thing. I love that it was so quiet because you felt exhausted with them, that you felt tired. And I had this moment to think like, wow, they all handled trauma in such a different way. No which way is incorrect. It's just, these are your fight responses. And as you get older, your fight responses do have to change in order to transform and grow. And 
I I had that moment to think that because it's like this quiet situation in the truck. I recently saw an interview with Jamie Lee where she referenced a song that they were going to use at the end of the movie. And I played it right before we did the podcast. And if we didn't have to deal with clearances and rights, I would totally play it right now. So I'm just going to tell everybody YouTube it. So YouTube it and give this Swedish artist some clicks and plays. It's JJ Johansson. And he has like this really deep vibrato Um, very melancholic and haunting. And the name of the song is called So Tell the Girls I'm Back in Town. It's so good. And so Jamie Lee was really excited of that end shot of the three of them and his haunting, seductive voice crooning from the radio. And uh, ultimately it didn't happen, but she references it of just like, oh, just it's such a good song and so fitting for this entire movie. So before we did this, I started playing it. I'm like, oh, oh, this should have stayed. Why didn't it? It's so spooky and amazing. That's amazing. Yeah, well, Um, I'll I'll play it for you when we're done. And we'll talk about Fargo and drink. (laughs) Yes. So before we go, they released a trailer um, for for Halloween Kills or a teaser, and it shows exactly the second after this, the last scene of this movie. Have you seen this trailer yet or not? No, I don't think you've seen it because we've never ever talked about it. No. So it just the, the teaser is just literally a second after the end of this movie, and what happens is um, they're in the back of the truck. And the moment they're leaving, fire trucks are coming. Oh, just the continuation. It just picks just up. Just like a second. Kind of like Halloween 2 was supposed all, to. Like the... This is where the beginning is, oh, the Halloween wow. kills. And all you see is Jamie Lee screaming, let it burn, let it burn, oh. let it burn. <gasps> it's so powerful with this guttural, traumatized scream of like let it burn no it's that's it that's the trailer that's it you can watch it it looks exactly like the scene they do a good job of matching it and so the next movie begins exactly a second later where this ends and i i love that it's like we've just gotten rid of evil I worked my life off to figure out this trap and these fucking firefighters who are responding way too quickly are <laughs> ruining my fucking chances. <laughs> so I know next year, because this podcast will be around forever and ever, we will be discussing Halloween kills and we're going to talk about that. That's exciting. Boom. Boom. So guys, thank you so much for listening to Halloween 2018 part one and two. I hope that you are having a wonderful Halloween and yeah, I hope you eat lots of candy and dance in your living room and we'll all hang out at Halloween party next year and in honor of Danny Elfman, play Dead Man's Party when you're done with this. Yeah? Yeah. All right. Goodbye. Bye. Do 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 do